1: Welcome, everyone. Today's show is about building a customer community. And to help me discuss this topic is Jeremy Stewart. Jeremy is the founder of Hari Mari, a colorful and high-quality line of footwear. Jeremy, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, Allison. Thanks for having me.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and especially this very creative company name?
0: Sure. Well, Harimari was born out of, uh, strangely enough, out of all things politics. Uh, I used to be a political consultant and specifically working abroad political races and had no background in footwear whatsoever. And so I was basically just uh, tired of my job and was looking for something new. And I had learned while working abroad that in politics, you're basically dressing up a package, uh, much like you would in consumer goods. You uh, dress a a politician up, you attach messages to them, you uh, send them out into the world. And if you're doing your job right and they're doing their job right, then you have success. And so when uh, things came to a head and was just wanting uh, a change of pace in, in my professional life, my wife and I uh, were living in Indonesia at the time. We decided to uh, to focus on flip flops. So specifically, we were uh, I remember the, the exact day it happened. We were actually sitting in our hotel room and we were in Vietnam at the time. And, and we looked up over uh, a cup of coffee and uh, watching CNN and uh, terrorists had bombed our favorite restaurant in Jakarta, uh, just a few miles from our home. And my wife looked at me and I looked at her and we said, "Uh, it might be time to go. And so we left Indonesia a few weeks later and really started to train and focus our thoughts on what was next. So we kept coming back to, to flip-flops for a lot of reasons, but but chief among them was it was just a, a completely state industry. And so we thought we could bring something new and innovative and really take a new, fresh approach to, to how you market flip-flops and how you create customer base than, than what had been taken previously. And so that was really the beginnings of our uh, journey in Hari Mari and to basically tie it back into where the idea came from. Hari means of the sun in Indonesian and Mari means of the sea in Latin. But it was just a fun, rhyming uh, combination of words that we thought customers would remember and have good recall with. But it also gave a, a quick nod back to how we came up with the idea.
1: Well, and I didn't hear you say, oh, I was executive at Nike for 15 years and then I decided to go make my own footwear. Why footwear?
0: Yeah, so we thought a lot about what we could provide in terms of value. Where was our value add in this equation? And we'd seen, obviously, in, in running shoes to coffee to, you know, name a consumer good that you see had it, this it, exploded the last two or three decades. And we thought that just, there had been a lot of innovation. But the, the big exception came in and really sandals. And uh, we we always joke that how do you innovate a four thousand year old product category? <laughs> it's almost like what's been done has been done. But specifically, uh, we didn't really know. We we just knew that it was interesting because there hadn't been any innovation. So we got to work knowing what we knew how to do. I, I started focus grouping people uh, ages eighteen to thirty four back in our hometown of Dallas. I was going on college campuses handing out flyers, uh, you know, offering fifty bucks and free pizza uh, if you came to one of our focus groups. And I just sat behind the glass. I had one of my friends who's really good at moderating focus groups, I gave him a script and he um, moderated five or six focus groups and uh, hundred people. And we just engaged opinions and attitudes on flip-flops and sandals and sat back and listened on where people bought, how they bought, what they liked, what they didn't like, what they paid, how often they bought, you know, most importantly. And, and out of that, those focus groups and out of that feedback is really what drove the foundation for our business. So we almost let the customer's feedback drive the formation of what would be different about Harimari, uh, what would make us unique in, in, that, in that field. And those things were pretty clear. From the get-go, we found that one, whether people love flip-flops or hate flip-flops, everyone hates that little piece that goes between your first and second toe. <laughs> you know, to causes so much pain that we call it the war on your toes. Uh-huh. Especially the first like, two months, you buy a new pair of flip-flops. People hate that and we found also, too, that it's the chief reason why people don't wear flip-flops. Um, about 40%, we found, of the population doesn't even wear flip-flops because they don't like the feeling of that little piece between your first and second toe. So we said, okay, well, let's do something there. The second thing we found is that while we knew women were open to color because of what was available on the market, largely for men, we didn't know because we kept seeing iterations of black and brown flip-flops. And we're just wondering, was that demand-driven or was that supply-driven? And... Uh, What we found after presenting some embarrassingly bad crayon drawings that I had made of of flip flops and putting them on this projector that must have shocked uh, all of our respondents that something so crude could be considered uh, a a design, uh, we found that guys were actually open to color. It just had to be presented the right way. We found that while we knew that running shoes were a growing staple of footwear, we are curious about flip-flops What we found it, not only through our focus groups, but through our research independently, we found that flip-flops tend to be the natural recipient of this kind of ever-ceasing trend towards casual in America. Um, so it's flip-flops and running shoes. In fact, if you look at the kind of the growth story of flip-flops and sandals, they're only second to running shoes in terms of their growth of the last decade across all footwear categories.
1: Wow. I had no idea.
0: Yeah. I mean, no one did. I mean, at least I didn't. Uh, and I thought that we knew quite a bit about flip-flops and sandals before we did the focus groups. And so we let those key pieces of information be our guide for how we were, were forming the company. But then we also looked at, just from our own background in advertising, specifically, I was a political advertiser, and we'd go out, and we'd pull and message test and research, and we'd take all the information we'd find, and we'd, we'd go out and we'd write all their scripts, produce all the ads ourselves, and throw them up on air. And so from an advertising perspective, just from a consumer of advertising, what we found really interesting is that, all the other brands that were based in the U.S. were doing so out of California, and almost every one of them advertises through a, a beach and water aesthetic. And so it's almost a, an ocean and beach vibe that's kind of permeated the industry, and because that's where it was born. it's was born in surf. It was born in surf culture. But if you look at the true growth story now behind flip-flops and sandals, the growth really is no longer on the coast. I mean, it's st- still there for sure. But the real growth is in the south and southeastern U.S., and, and mostly in landlocked cities and states. So we said, okay, look, if we can change a toe piece to be more comfortable, if we can incorporate and inject color into kind of a largely black and brown flip flop arena, if we can also just come at this from a different marketing angle and be able to talk in themes and tones and, and narratives that more closely resonate with a landlocked audience, but do so in a very aspirational way, we might have something. And that's really how it started. That's why we chose footwear, and that's why specifically we we homed in on flip flops and sandals to begin with.
1: That's a great story, and it sounds like you were very customer focused from the get-go, and I, I hear that in a lot of fast retail brands, but it seems like there's more customer heart behind the brand which is reflected in the community that you've built around the Harimari brand. Can you talk a little bit about why community is such a key ingredient behind the brand?
0: For us, that was an important step from day one. We wanted to create more than a a flip-flop company. We wanted to do more than just sell flip-flops. And I think that that extends into a couple of different areas for us. One is my wife and I, before we even started this company, we knew we were going to help kids in some capacity. We're passionate about helping kids. We had volunteered quite a bit while we were abroad. My wife volunteered for an orphanage uh, outside of Jakarta. I had produced a documentary film about hunger, malnutrition, and how it affects kids in Southeast Asia. And we knew that whatever we would do next, we wanted to help kids in some capacity. We saw a lot of great brands doing things for kids abroad, and we wanted to help kids in the U.S. So we looked to where we could help the best. And we found that, uh, surprisingly, that pediatric cancer is the most fatal disease among children. And it's more fatal, actually, than all the other childhood diseases combined. And so we said, OK, look, whatever it is, whatever we land on, let's help kids with cancer. Because 20 years from now, we don't want to look back and just having peddled a product for, for that, that length of time without actually making a, a meaningful impact and dent in and, and, and an issue. And specifically for us, my wife was pregnant at the time. It kind of all dovetailed very nicely together. I remember when we made that decision, we said, okay, look, this for us. It's, it's kind of selfishly a way for us to be able to feel like we're doing more. But indirectly, you're uh, hopefully bringing meaning to something that probably is pretty <laughs> pretty meaningless on, on a, a larger scale in terms of just uh, flip-flops and sandals. And so that was one important piece of hopefully creating something much larger than a brand, a community around a brand. But I think the other piece that we were fanatical about from the get-go was And because we didn't know anything about footwear, was just how do you build a brand in footwear specifically? And we looked for a lot of different touchstones to, to help guide us beyond customer feedback and beyond the focus groups. We started reading just any book we could get our hands on. And one of those, the key books that we found, my wife and I, and, and that we just gravitated very strongly towards was Tony Shea. Uh, his book called Delivering Happiness. And in the book, I mean, there are a lot of incredibly interesting themes that Tony brings to the the table. But the one that I think that keeps coming back to and kind of the connective tissue and the glue is really making your customers feel like they have the best experience possible when they're ordering or buying from you. And whether that's from the way that products are presented to the way, the ease with which customers can purchase them to the way that they arrive on your doorstep to the ease with which they're able to either return or exchange. I mean, all that matters. And, and so we really harnessed what we could out of that and tried to inject that into the early, early beginnings of our company. So from day one, we were fanatical about creating a great customer experience and having everyone walk away saying, wow, that was incredible, and, and hopefully telling their friends and family about it. And so to us, that extends in kind of this broader conversation about experiential consumerism. For us, you're buying a great pair of flip-flops. Yeah, it has to start there. It has to start with product first. But you're really, hopefully, purchasing an experience in our minds. And so when you receive a pair of our flip-flops that you order from harrymari.com, you get Flip-flops, you get an incredible box and packaging that we spend a lot of time crafting. You'll get a handwritten note from us that thanks you for your purchase, that lets you know that you're special in our eyes because you are. And beyond that, we often include something else in the box that you didn't order, some sort of value add, whether it be a a leather keychain made out of the same leather as your flip-flop or a canvas bag that you can take to the beach with you. It's something that you didn't pay for, but we want you to know that we're, we're thinking about you. And, and that was paramount in our minds from day one. So it almost goes from product to philanthropy to experience and, and kind of this three, three-tiered system, this triangulated system that we had about creating community. And uh, as a result of that, we felt like and, and we continue to feel like we're building more than just a flip-flop company. At least That's our hope.
1: That's an incredible amount of work to string together the customer experience into the philanthropy and the product. I think most people try to do one of those three well, but don't tend to do all of them well. So congratulations for hitting the right mark. But I imagine that there must also be, that's kind of a one-way push to the customer. What do you get back from the customer once you do
0: that? You're right. That's the question. And I think that the answer is that you hopefully get a customer for life. And that's really what we're trying to achieve. I think that what we found entering the flip-flop arena specifically, and I'm, I'm curious to know how this extends to other areas of, of consumer goods. And maybe this is more of an apparel, but we're issue. But we found that with flip-flops specifically from our focus groups and our polling is that people tend to stay pretty loyal to a brand and they don't tend to branch out a lot. And I think part of that's because as humans, we just when we find something we like, we stick with it. <laughs> but I think also part of it is that uh, in this specific arena, there are very few new entrants. I mean, contrary to what I first thought, the barriers to entry to footwear, to flip-flop sandals is super high uh, for a lot of different reasons. But um, I think what you're trying to achieve is you're trying to get somebody just to give you a shot. You know, We, we always say to our customers, uh, you know, just give us a shot at the title. Give us one one try, you know, and what we found is that because of the immediate comfort that we've created in the product first and then followed by the kind of the things we try to build around the product, we find that customers who try us tend to stick with us for the long haul. And so for us, that means uh, not only repeat purchase throughout the year, but repeat purchases through friends and family that they've talked to them about us. And so just reference straight reference uh, business. And for us, that's that's hugely impactful. I mean, to the point, you know, most customers buy one pair of flip-flops a year, I think for normal brands. But for us, we found that really they're buying two and three times a year, maybe even four. Uh, I read an email yesterday morning from a customer that said that this was their seventh purchase. And I looked at their very first purchase was less than two years ago. And for us, that was really interesting because not only were they buying seven times in two years, but they're buying for themselves because they're buying the same size and they're buying all of our different colors within certain styles. It was almost contrary to what we first thought. We thought, oh, man, we're we're setting up a a lifetime customer to buy once a year. But really, that's completely false. (laughs) What what we ended up doing is setting up a lifetime customer to buy multiple times within one year for themselves and hopefully uh, multiple times within friends and family members uh, around them. Um, the idea is it's a permanent community. It's it's not uh, ephemeral. You know, It's something that hopefully builds deep roots and lasts for a very long time.
1: Well, and it seems that that's what's coming through is the heart. So the, the heart of the company is evident in the product that comes out, the little touches in the experience of receiving the product, and then the altruism that also reflects who you are as founder. So I think in many cases, maybe millennials, maybe other generations are looking for something that's not so corporate. They want to bond with a brand in a way that they might bond with a friend. And when you open up that, maybe it's vulnerability around what you stand for, that allows them to come closer to you. Would you agree?
0: Completely. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. And I think we're past the point as consumers where we're just buying for product alone. And I think that's really at the heart of what we've tried to thoughtfully build within our company. I know a lot of other brands obviously do the same thing, but I feel like in flip-flops and sandals, we're really doing that first and foremost, and hopefully we're leading in, in that area.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And just the fact that you get the buy cycle to be what it is. And we oftentimes talk about customer lifetime value on this show and building customer equity. And I wrestle with the balance between looking at things from a transactional point of view, where it's, it's, are you ready to buy the next one? Or what's the purchase cadence? to the heart, uh, which is which is really, you know, why does somebody want to buy from you? And I think you've really hit on something interesting here, where the customer falls in love with the brand and then buys all the different colors within the style. Is there a challenge that you get, you know, once they've bought all the colors, is there pressure to, to generate, you know, a thousand colors of every brand?
0: I think there can be. And so we wrestle with that for sure. Do you go more colors or, or do you even take it into to different areas in terms of functionality. And that's where were. I hope we've tried to be more thoughtful when we're introducing and developing new product about how our customers use them. And, and this goes back to the, the first thoughts that flip-flops have grown far beyond being just something you wear pre and post-surf. I mean, this has become an everyday footwear option for millions of, of Americans, and so I think when you're when you're thinking about it like that, and you're thinking about all the different topographies and different travels and trips, and and we kind of think of it as kind of these adventures. Um, what does that adventure look like for for each one of our customers? And whether that's to the ocean or to a lake or to a, a, a mountainous or hilly area, or is it something more urban? And so when we're developing product. We're thinking about color for sure, but we're we're now also thinking about okay, where can we functionally put these on customers, and so that's why you'll see certain lines with the kind of predisposition towards certain geographic areas. So if you look at our Parks line, for example, there's almost like a hiking boot outsole on it, and really we're we're trying to create a, a functional piece of open toe footwear that people can you know wear on you know trails and and uh, outdoors, and hopefully make it feel like it's more of a camp themed flip flop option. On the other spectrum, we have a line we call Dunes, which is a little more water-friendly. And they float in water. They're antimicrobial, so they don't stink. They, they have these little siping footwear channels in the insole that we took from you know, the outsole of a boat shoe that channel away water from your foot. Your foot dries faster. So all these things we're, we're trying to think about, you know, design and development, and hopefully we're being thoughtful about it. But, yeah, I mean, I think that it extends to color, extends to functionality. And then I think it also extends to kind of price point too and in, in a certain extent. I mean, what we we did found is that in our focus grouping is that there is a customer who will pay no more than ten dollars for a pair of flip-flops uh, in their in their lifetimes. So they'll willingly buy five to six pairs of, of those flip-flops in a year, but they won't spend more than ten dollars each time. And so what we try to do is is we try to, to almost move in a different direction where we said, okay, not only are we gonna create a great experience for our customers, but we also want to create hopefully a more conscious Consumer-friendly product, so that we're creating something for the long term and not something that's going to go back in a landfill in a few months. And so, I think that with our higher price points, you're seeing better materials, you're seeing better construction methods, and we kind of marry all that together with color and and functionality. Hopefully, you're you're seeing something that lasts for a really long time, stays out of landfills, that you're able to take on in certain different environments, depending on wh- where you're going or wh- where your life's leading you. Oh, yeah. then also at the same time, every, every pair you purchase uh, gives back in, in the same breath. So uh, to our pediatric cancer initiative called Plops fighting Cancer. So that's what we're trying to, to think about when we're thinking about how do we not only ingratiate ourselves with a customer base? How do we build that loyalty? How do we retain a customer for life? But how are we really meeting their needs instead of just throwing a product at them, expecting them to buy it? Like I think, you know, it's been uh, kind of a, a past strategy of, of other brands.
1: So it's pretty clear that you're tapping into a a number of tribes, people who care about um, sustainability, people who care about maybe altruistic causes and pediatric cancer, as well as high-quality materials, and they like this casual lifestyle. When you build the community and you reach into those tribes... Do you get any discord where maybe a tribe doesn't want to resonate with your brand or maybe they push back on you in some way? Are there areas where when you're building a community, you have to be careful?
0: Unquestionably, yeah. I mean, I'll give you a few lighthearted examples. (laughs) There is a very hardcore pronated foot (laughs) community that loves to wear flip flops, but that doesn't have a lot of options that are available to them right now. And whether that be through construction or through design and development, one thing we found is that there are customers who want very specific types of footwear that you just can't quite offer in, in our efforts to be a little bit more mainstream and, and hopefully a little bit more uh, appealing to all. And so, uh, yeah, we've heard feedback from people who have pronated feet that want something a little bit different. We have had people who want you know, zero drop in their their flip-flops. We have people who want... Uh, sorry,
1: what does zero drop mean?
0: It means just that there's no angle of decline from the sole of your heel to put in your toes. So it's just completely flat. And a lot of our flip-flops have a little bit of declination between the, the heel and the, and the toe. So um, there's a kind of a flat-footed audience. There's even a, an audience that wants to see certain types of materials. And certainly... I think one great thing about different viewpoints is that you get a lot of ideas, you know. Our customers have almost single-handedly given us every idea we've had. I think we probably wrongly received the credit for it that, you know, the customers gave. I mean, even going back to our initial focus groups, even our little patented memory foam toe piece that now, you know, we have an exclusive ride on that basically mitigates all the break-in periods associated with flip-flops that, you know, kind of used to haunt people's toes, that little idea of foam between somebody's toes was an idea from, you know, born out of focus groups.
1: And I just personally want to thank you for that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, it's, it's what, you know, among other things to, to make it stand apart. But I think back to your point is, yeah, you, you have to be careful and, and and maybe looking to placate every audience. You, you can't be everything to everybody, right? But, mm-hmm. but I do think that there is a huge value in listening to ideas and to questions or, or concerns or or wants, because that's really where design and development kind of merge for future product.
1: Is there a process that you have internally for listening to social media or taking in the information? How do you know that the comments and the feedback coming in are from customers versus non-customer? Does it matter to you when you build a community?
0: No, I I think you have to listen to both equally. I mean, obviously, if you have somebody who's who's been uh, buying your flip-flops for the past seven years, and there's a, a comment with regard to the evolution of product, or there's kind of a frame of reference from the beginning. I think you're probably going to listen to that a little more than you would somebody who just discovered your product yesterday. But I think it's important to listen to both. I mean, you have to be able to filter what's good in terms of good criticism and good feedback versus something that maybe is not understood or is just kind of a, a fly by curbside diagnosis of your product. If that makes sense. And so, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, I, for us, we don't have a, a systematic social media filter or, or systematic customer service filter that brings a lot of these ideas from, you know, that are mostly from customers to the top. But we do make a concerted effort within our company to make everybody read all of them because it does matter on so many different levels from, you know, the people who work for RMR that are in customer service that, you know, are in contact with our customers day in, day out. Obviously, that's a hugely important deal for them to be able to receive that feedback and to, to be able to pass along. But I mean, it really extends from everyone down to our interns, for example, to knowing what our customers are saying about our products so that they can address it either directly with customers when they talk to them at events or in our stores, or they can just be able to kind of have that know-how and the knowledge when they're talking on the phone to somebody who calls up out of the blue. So I think there's there's a lot of areas that being able to kind of holistically look at feedback effect. But I think that the main point that I guess I'm trying to make here is that it's important for all levels of our business to be able to to feel that, to be able to soundboard that from design, development, advertising, marketing, customer service, even even our warehouse. I mean, it, fulfillment is a huge deal for us since we fulfill everything ourselves. And so if we have a customer feedback that you know hits up upon fulfillment in some capacity, we want to hear about it. And I think that it's a hugely important deal.
1: Do you think that's one of the necessary ingredients for building community is you have to look at the comments internally. It can't just be a one way content creation strategy.
0: Unquestionably. Yeah. You have to be willing to hear the good, the bad and the ugly with all of it and to respect it as well. I think there are probably quite a few companies and brand owners that dismiss things out of hand because they don't want to read negative or critical remarks. And I think that uh, while we don't have a ton, we do listen very closely when we do receive them because it's such an important deal for us. And I I think that goes back, Allison, to kind of our first topic is creating community. Well, if you're not listening to the community that you're living within, then you're certainly not doing anything to advance your brand. Um, there's an evolution here. You grow with your community, you grow with the customers and the people that brought you there. And if you turn a deaf ear to all that, it really becomes less of a community and and more of, uh, almost like a brand dictatorship, right? Mm -hmm. It's product pushing. It's product pushing. Exactly. And that that goes back to the kind of the fallacy of what, you know, brands of yesteryear can still continue to do. And hopefully what we're trying to change with our own brand is that you're really creating something that's wanted out there and that people have expressed a desire for, and you're basically just trying to make that a reality versus just taking something that you like, uh, which, by the way, I've done before, and it's failed miserably. We've had designs where we thought were just the most brilliant thing, uh, you know, since sliced bread and uh, we would put it out and it would do horribly. And and it's a good lesson to learn that you really want to bring things to to fruition that are are wanted by others, not just by you.
1: I love that. I love that. So let's say that I want to build a community around my brand. What do you think I should focus on first, second, third? What's the right way to go about it?
0: I think that, product has to come first because if you can't make a, a great product, the rest of the community almost doesn't matter or, or won't have a foundation to live on. So I think that there's a kind of a foundational piece to this and just focusing on product, product, product and making sure that that's really high quality. Uh, at least for us, that's been key. But then kind of looking at experience around that. And so being able to kind of build a, a very uh, worthwhile experience that basically matches the quality level of your product. And then beyond that, For us, again, being able to build communities and the the way that we like to do that is is obviously through our philanthropic, through our environmentally conscious kind of uh, approach. And so, Again, part of that is selfishly because we want to be good stewards in, in what we're doing as a brand. And and so there's there's definitely a, a part of this is self-motivated. But I think there's also, to your point, a lot of it hopefully gains traction within the community, both in terms of, hey, look, there's a product to support. And if we're going to be buying a product anyway, why not buy something that, that actually gives back and helps a certain cause have greater ramifications on our environmentalists? So, yeah, we, we hope that those, those things are, are things that people take into consideration. But I think that it has to start with product and then you, you build experiences and, and uh, communities are around that.
1: It almost sounds like it's concentric circles where product is in the center and then the experience of enjoying the product is the second circle. And then maybe who you are and the essence of the founders of the brand is the third circle. Or do they interlock differently?
0: I think the co circle idea is exactly spot on, but there are parts of it that I think that almost have their own lives that live outside of the circle and and that feed into and integrate within that core. And so I think, for example, if you looked at, yeah, like our our Flops Fighting Cancer initiative, there's a whole piece of our business that is, um, (laughs) has nothing to do with flip-flops. It's really just about giving back and going to our partner hospitals and spending time with kids and, and families who are, Kind of in this struggle and this battle for their lives, and um, and for us, it's just a hugely important piece of why we do this. But it's also, in a lot of ways, it's its own standalone piece that, while connected to flip flops through obviously our, our brand umbrella and through you know charitable percentage uh, donated for each you know pair sold, it almost has its own life. And it, if that makes any sense. There are certain parts of it that kind of live outside, but that's the one great example I can give where it, it does so for the positive.
1: And I think that's where it's hard from a quantitative standpoint. You know, if you're trying to say, well, what's the ROI of sponsoring pediatric cancer? I'm not sure that you can. You know, what's the ROI of being in love with a brand or being in love with your spouse? It's it's so hard to quantify. <laughs> I can't measure it in dinners. <laughs>
0: Yeah, this is where, um, you know, accountants and <laughs> numbers hawks, uh, you know, end up scratching their heads. But I think that there has to be a part of business that is not empirical. And there has to be a part of business that is purely emotionally motivated. And, I, and maybe that's part of brand building. I don't know. Um, maybe it's part of creating an emotional bond with your customers. But for us, there definitely is a piece of what we do here, and whether it be in our flops fighting cancer, charitable component, or whether it's in you know, creating great packaging, even though it means reducing that ROI or, or you know, reducing our gross profits, whether it means committing more resources to customer service than probably many other brands do because just going that extra mile and taking that extra step and spending more time and with our customers makes us feel like we're actually doing something that, for the positive. I think we kind of look at all those things, there is a healthy argument to be made that if you're building a brand, you're just looking at the bottom line ROI, you're probably not going to be a brand for long. And to your point earlier, that probably was not the case 10, 20 years ago. Uh, but today, I think as we build these entities and they, as they almost take on a life of their own, this Hari brand, hopefully we're doing our jobs right it's kind of its own breathing, living entity. If you don't have passion around it, or if you don't have an emotional nucleus, it really can't survive on its own. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Perfect. I've loved everything we've talked about, Jeremy. If people want to reach you, is there a way they can get in touch to talk more about community or other topics?
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, my email is jeremy at harimari.com, J-E-R-E-M-Y, at harimari.com. Uh, I encourage all all your beautiful listeners out there to, to, uh, to check out our, our footwear and give us a shot at the title, so to speak, at harimari.com. And then I would, in that same breath, say that, you know, slip a pair on. We'll, we'll take the uh, Pepsi challenge, so to speak, against any other brand of flip-flops out there. So, yeah, I, th- those are good starting points to connect with Harimari and certainly – Thank you for making all this possible and for, you know, your time today. I really appreciate it, Allison.
1: Yeah, I really love the aspects that we talk about. We get oftentimes so, um, I call it navel-gazing, so quantitatively navel-gazing and, you know, <laughs> is, this, is this going to actually move the needle for the business at the bottom line? And we forget about this other piece that, you know, like you said, the business isn't all about being empirical, that that's kind of the past and the way we build in the future is so much more around the heart. So thank you for sharing all of your ideas. As always, links to everything we discussed are at AmbitionData.com slash podcast. Jeremy, I hope you'll join us at some time in the future to share more great ideas
0: with us. Well, probably more than you ever care to know about flip-flops, but, <laughs> I, <it's> certainly, <laughs> but it certainly wasn't too bad.
1: Fantastic. Remember, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Allison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text Ambition Data, one word, to 31996. And after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.